Well, tonight our time of worship begins in the city of Joppa. And as you're probably thinking, that makes sense because Jonah fled to Joppa when God gave him his commission to go preach to the Ninevites. But if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 10. And this is interesting because this is actually where the Apostle Peter is staying with a tanner by the name of Simon. And Peter, wishing to pray to the Lord, chooses to go up to the housetop around the sixth hour to pray. And it's at this time that the Lord appears to him in a vision. And so if you'd turn with me to Acts chapter 10, verse 10. And we'll read down through verse 23. We read, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision he had seen might be, behold, three men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. This interesting account is made more so by the setting in which it takes place and the people that are involved. Simon Peter, if you recall from the Passion, had rejected Jesus on the night he was betrayed. betrayed. The next day, Jesus was crucified. We know from Scripture the overwhelming agony and shame Peter must have felt because he wept bitterly after uh, the rooster crowed. This fulfilled Jesus' words. Yet we see later in John 21 that at the Sea of Galilee, the post-resurrected Christ comes to the lake while they're fishing, and after having breakfast, Jesus restores Peter. Now we see Peter being sent to Yahweh to preach to the Gentiles in the house of a centurion named Cornelius, yet he's initially resistant. 
It's also important to point out that the Gentile who had also received a vision from Yahweh obeyed immediately. Just like Peter, Jonah is given an undeserved second chance to preach to the Gentiles in Nineveh. Just as Peter expressed reservations, Jonah also demonstrates reluctance to obey Yahweh in Jonah 3 verses 1 to 10. This is our text for tonight. Regardless, in both instances, God always accomplishes his will. Before we open the word of God together, let's bow our heads in prayer and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. O Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you with with hearts eager to learn of your word. We ask you to be with us tonight. Would you give me the words to speak? Would you give me the the wisdom to clearly uh, share your word in a way that honors you and glorifies your name? And would you give us ears to ear and hearts that are that are ready ready to bear fruit, that we might bear much fruit as we apply your word to our lives? Watch over us this evening, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight's sermon is Jonah chapter 3. So while you're turning there, I just want to give you a quick reminder of where we've been in this series. This is the third, um, third lesson of a four-sermon series. Um, in Jonah chapter 1, one of the things that we saw repeatedly was Jonah was a rebellious prophet. When called by Yahweh to preach to the Assyrians, he instead went to Joppa, got on a ship full of pagan sailors, sailed as far and as fast as away as he could to get away from the presence of God. Of course, God sent a storm after them. And when Jonah convinced the sailors to throw him in the sea, leaving him drown and not have to preach to the Ninevites, God sent a fish to Jonah to miraculously save him. While in the fish, Jonah reveals himself to be a self-righteous prophet. He prays in a sinful way, even though everything that he prayed was theologically correct. His motives were were smoked out, and we cannot fool God. As a result, God, in his disgust, commanded the fish to vomit Jonah up on the dry land. This brings us to tonight's text, and our message for this evening is entitled, Jonah, the Reluctant Prophet. So we're going to start with Jonah chapter 3, read all the way through verses 1 to 10. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let man call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way 
and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Chapter 3 of Jonah reveals God's remarkable forgiveness and love. And this is love that he's willing to grant to repentant sinners. The key word here, repentant. Jonah's attitude toward the Ninevites is irrelevant to God's intended purpose. Jonah was to preach God's truth. God's truth alone allows wicked sinners to be saved. God alone determines who we will save. And from this, we draw three main points for the evening. Jonah's reluctant obedience, the Ninevites' desperate obedience, Christ's willing obedience, and a question for all of us who profess the name of Christ to consider, are we reluctant or obedient? Now, one might hesitate to wonder why Jonah was so afraid to go to Nineveh to preach repentance. So let me use a modern example, and that would be of North Korea. They laugh because uh, they're my students, and I'm always telling stories about North Korea, but this one actually fits. In the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, also known as North Korea, children are raised to worship Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and Kim Jong-un as gods. Before meals, children are to say grace, thanking the Kims for their food. They are taught to sing songs of worship and praise to the Kims from a national hymnal consisting of 600 songs. Bibles are not only against the law, but anyone bringing one into North Korea is imprisoned. Any North Korean found with a Bible or professing Christianity is arrested, sent to prison, tortured, and often killed for their treason and their anti-communist activities. Excuse me. So, imagine being asked to cross the heavily fortified border between South and North Korea. Walk 120 miles through the North Korean countryside filled with military forces. Enter the capital city of Pyongyang with the express purpose of preaching the gospel to Kim Jong-un. Have you ever been so overwhelmed with fear that you're swept over by a sense of weakness that your knees buckle? If so, you could imagine the sense of dread Jonah felt. Here's another example. Imagine you were asked, nay directed, to hike through ISIS-controlled territories and go to uh, the capital and preach the gospel to the ISIS soldiers or to march through the Taliban-held areas and preach the gospel in Kabul. This is all horrifying. Jonah would rather be thrown in the sea and drown than face what he expected would be a horrifying death. But what God commands, we are to obey. We know from John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How can we profess to love Christ 
if we're unwilling to obey what he asks of us. So now let's go to Jonah 3 verses 1 to 2 now that we set the stage. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it a proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Jonah's unique among the prophets in that he received a second chance to obey. Prophets typically were judged more quickly and severely precisely because of their special calling and the revelation that they received from God. If you look in 1 Kings verse, uh, chapter 13, we see that a prophet was called to prophesy to King Jeroboam. Now, if that name doesn't really strike a bell, <clears throat> it's not one of your more often quoted texts. But you've probably heard of King Solomon. His son, King Rehoboam, was petitioned by the Israelites to give them some relief from King Solomon's arduous and very ambitious building projects. Against the counsel of his father's counselors, Rehoboam responded to the people of Israel that he would be more strict and more punishing than his father. And that was when the kingdom split. The ten northern tribes found, became the, the nation of Israel, and the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin became uh, Judah. The king of Israel was this gentleman uh, that is known by the name of King uh, Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was afraid that the Israelites would go to Jerusalem and worship as they were commanded to do by God. So what he did was he instituted idolatry so that the people of Israel wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem. This displeased God, and God sent a prophet to proclaim judgment against the king. Now, when the prophet proclaimed the judgment to the king, God had instructed the prophet, give the message, go directly home, do not stop, do not take refreshment. And so he prophesied to the king, and as he had done so, the altar split, ashes poured out. The king was terrified and begged the prophet to stay so he could maybe appease God, reward the prophet. And the prophet indicated God had directed him to go immediately home without stopping or taking refreshment or anything. We read that another man sought to detain this prophet, so he lied, saying that God indicated it was okay for him to stop and be refreshed and, and eat with him. And so the first prophet listened to this instruction as opposed to following the instruction that God had given him. Yahweh's judgment was swift. He appointed a lion to kill him. We read that account in 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 24. So if God is so quick to punish prophets for disobeying him, why on earth would Jonah, of all people, probably the most disobedient prophet we see, getting a second chance? Well, one commentator noted two reasons, and I think they're very valid. First, Jonah tried to manipulate God by seeking judgment as a means of escape from preaching to the Ninevites. So, in his having the sailors throw him overboard, he figured, well... I'm going to drown, God will punish me, but at least I don't have to preach to the Ninevites. That's one. Two, 
Yahweh proved to Jonah that neither his judgment nor his mercy can be manipulated. God wanted to show Yahweh, or sorry, Yahweh wanted to show Jonah mercy because he wanted to grow mercy in this rebellious, judgment-obsessed prophet. Unlike God's first commission, Jonah obeys Yahweh and is recorded in the first half of verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. So we see Jonah obeying God, and that's good. However, we see in the second half of verse 3 and in verse 4, Jonah's reluctance, which is not good. We read the second half of verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. There are a couple reasons this half-hearted pronouncement indicates Jonah's reluctance to see God's mercy shown to Nineveh. First, in the Hebrew text, the term an exceedingly great city uh, is translated from Hebrew to English as Nineveh, a great city to Yahweh. Now, there are a couple reasons that are proposed for this. One, per, one reason that some commentators believe is that God highly values the city. And based on God's willingness to offer forgiveness, should they repent, that definitely does hold some water that God values the city is going to offer them repentance. But there's another uh, meaning of, of the phrase that other commentators hold to, and I believe is the correct one, and that is this. A very large city. Why? Well, because its Hebrew is supported with another Hebrew phrase, a journey of three days, which translated to English means a three days walk. So there's not a lot of clarity here in the Hebrew, but it is indeed a large city. And the point that the writer is trying to make is that the city takes three days to walk around, walk through it, present the gospel to everyone. And Jonah, his evangelical effort, shows a whole one day's work. So God tells him, go to Nineveh, a huge city. Give this message to everyone. Tell everybody that in 40 days, the city will be overturned. Instead, he goes in, puts in one day's work. His sinful indifference is exhibited by his reluctant effort. This observation is supported with the message he proclaims. Now, when God initially commissioned Jonah to preach to Nineveh, he was very specific as to why. <coughs> God begins his declaration with two Hebrew imperatives, up, go, which in English is translated go to Nineveh, or, or go. But in the Hebrew, when these two words are used one after another, it implies uh, an imperative and an interjection. Not just go, but with like an exclamation point after it. Go. So this isn't a request. This isn't a suggestion. This is God telling Jonah in no certain terms, get up and go. So when you look at Jonah 1 verse 2, translated in English, Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. 
This is an oracle of doom directed to a foreign nation that is to be delivered in a foreign nation. This is also unique in Hebrew history. God has directed Jonah to let the Assyrians know that God will no longer tolerate their wickedness. And to briefly recap, Assyria was most blatant in their grotesque cruelty. We, we had touched on this a little last week. Their wanton savagery against subjugated cities was not only paraded publicly to instill fear in their enemies, but it was also displayed as a sense of power and invulnerability. Assyrian kings left many inscriptions describing these actions proudly. We see examples of this kind of wickedness today when we see the grisly display that many cartels make of the victims of their violence. Now it's important to note here what God is not saying. God was not saying he was unaware of Nineveh's wickedness. And somebody brought it to his attention because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God is outside of space and time. He created both. He's in all places at all times in the fullness of his glory and power. The best way to look at this term and this phrase is to see that God has allowed Nineveh to store up the full measure of his righteous wrath in permitting their continued existence to this point. So the second indication of Jonah's reluctance is the language that he uses in preaching verse 4. We read, He cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Again, it seems that Jonah is following the letter of the law as opposed to the spirit of the law. We read in 3.1, Jonah was told, proclaim it, to the pro, proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. And this is the proclamation. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But this is much different than the warnings of other prophets. When you look at other prophets in Old Testament history, they would not only deliver the message, but they would indicate who the message was from. If you go to Exodus 5 verse 1, for example... You see Moses and Aaron delivering a message to the Pharaoh. And this message is as follows. Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. So Jonah fails to let the Ninevites know that this message is from God. But furthermore, he fails to tell the Ninevites why God is bringing judgment. God told Jonah to proclaim this was because Nineveh's wickedness had come up before him. But this isn't in the second address. Remember, God says the second commission, go and proclaim to them the proclamation that I give you, which is yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, there is a lot of significance in this very brief proclamation. And so I want to look at both the meaning of 40 days and the Hebrew word for overthrown, because it's very uh, significant in both. First, let's look at 40 days. When we look in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, 40 days is associated with judgment of a great population, both people and animals. We observe this in the flood narrative. This reminds readers of the universal scope of God's moral governance. 
If you turn to Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, God here is not indicting Israel, but all of humanity. Here we read that Yahweh saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We see another instance of 40 days when Moses spent 40 days in the presence of God on Mount Sinai. Remember, he brought down the Ten Commandments, saw the Israelites worshiping a golden calf, threw them down in disgust. God was willing to destroy Israel, and Moses went back up to petition God for Israel so that he wouldn't destroy them. He intercessed on their behalf before an angry God. The 40 days therefore suggests God will either destroy Nineveh if they continue in wickedness as seen in the flood account, or God will rescind his annihilation in the event they repent, as with Moses. These two possibilities are also reflected in the term will be overturned. God's command throughout history has always been clear and unambiguous. But the Hebrew word for overthrown is fascinating because it provides the citizens of Nineveh two possible fates. The term uh, is found in the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, or the halot. And this is a word called nepaketh, and it means will be overturned. The verb for overturn, hapak, and uh, looks like this. The term can mean one of two things. It can either indicate total destruction. And we see this very word used to describe the total destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, recalling the historical precedent for God's response to extreme wickedness, conveying the possibility of annihilation. The other use of overturn, hafak, carries the sense to change or reform. We see an example of this in Psalm 30, verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. So this word then suggests two possible fates. Destruction by a physical overturning of the city or reformation by an ethical overturning of the citizen's behavior. The specific word may also have been why Jonah went to Nineveh, choosing to see only the meaning that was applied to God's wrath and judgment, and choosing to ignore or disregard the other meaning that might indicate God's remarkable mercy, the very mercy that Jonah received after he was cast into the sea. Jonah was a reluctant prophet who finally relented and presented God's warning to Nineveh in an unimpressive and lifeless fashion. How did the Ninevites respond? Well, this brings us to our second main point tonight, Nineveh's desperate obedience. God does not need man to accomplish his will. God does not depend on an exciting worship band, a hyped-up message, or a smooth delivery to bring a wretched sinner to his knees in repentance. God allows man the privilege of serving as his messenger 
It's God's truth and the work of the Holy Spirit that will accomplish God's will. We see a marvelous example of this in tonight's text, chapter 3, verses 5 to 10, where we read Nineveh's response. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call out to God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And then we read in verse 10, when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You've got to also remember, we talked about how Nineveh was a very brutal and violent culture. This was a traumatized, battle-hardened populace. Researchers have published a report titled, Nothing New Under the Sun. It's published in the Journal of Early Science and Medicine. In studying ancient writings from the Assyrian dynasty dating from 1300 to 609 BC, keep in mind the book of Jonah was written in about 612 BC, so that was within that range, we see, or the authors conclude, that the the writings from these Assyrian leaders revealed symptoms of PTSD. Soldiers in ancient Assyria, which is located in present-day Iraq, were tied to a grueling three-year schedule. They typically spent one year being toughened up by building roads, bridges, and other projects before spending a year at war and then returning to their families for a year before starting the cycle again. The sorts of symptoms after battle were very clearly what we would now call post-traumatic stress syndrome. They described hearing and seeing ghosts talking to them who would be ghosts of people they'd killed in battle. And that's exactly the experience of modern-day soldiers who've been involved in close hand-to-hand combat. As the study's abstract states, the researchers also found instances of soldiers reporting flashbacks, sleep disturbance, and low mood. This was a populace in desperate need of something their culture could not provide. God alone could. It was God's will to save the worst of sinners to let Jonah, Israel, and everyone who reads the book of Jonah to know there is no sin beyond repentance, no life God cannot recover, no person so evil that God cannot save. The Ninevites grabbed onto this hope, humbled themselves, and fasted in repentance. A citywide fast from the greatest to the least, everyone regardless of status. God had overturned the hierarchy. The subject of verse 6 reveals that it was the message that was important, not the king. Despite Jonah's meager one-day mission, the word of God had its intended effect. It not only brought the city to repentance, but
but it humbled the king. The king's response is also uncharacteristic. Monarchs of the ancient Near East were initiators of cultural norms. This is completely different. Rather than the people responding to an edict of the king, the king responds to the news of proclamation and the growing response of his subjects. He didn't initiate it. He responded to this groundswell. One commentator writes, The king humbled himself in four four steps, marked by a series of four narrative verb forms. First, he rose from his throne, relinquishing the trappings of his royal authority. Next, he removed his robe, signifying his wealth and prestige, and replaced it with sackcloth. Finally, he joined the rest of Nineveh in the dust, adding his pleas for mercy to theirs. Here he was indistinguishable from the people. God's dismantling of the human power structure was complete. After the king sits in the dust, clothed in sackcloth, we come to verses 7 to 9, where we read, the king, he issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now, this is interesting because the very Hebrew used for cry out to God that he might relent and we will not perish are the same Hebrew words that were used in chapter 1 to talk of the pagan sailors who cried out to Yahweh, do not hold us accountable for the blood of this innocent man before they threw Jonah over the side. Same words. Another interesting thing is the king, with full support of the municipal government, issues a proclamation. The interesting thing is there are three reasons this proclamation is recorded after the city goes into repentance. Number one, it emphasizes the city's behavior is due to the word of God, not to the king's proclamation. Number two, it codifies repentance with the king's decree to turn from wickedness and from the violence that each commits with his own hand. Third, since God's judgment was against the city, a decree from the king was the best way to demonstrate that they were repenting as a city. It may strike you as odd that this proclamation would also include animals, but we know from history that in the Persian culture, animals were often to be part of mourning rituals as well. So the animals don't sin. They're perfectly obedient. We saw that with the fish. But another commentator observed that including animals in mourning ceremonies linked to the flood, the flood narrative where animals along with humans were spared. Either way, we go to verse 9 and we see the king's postscript where he writes, Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. 
rather than reading this as Nineveh partaking in corporate repentance to appease an angry God, which is very pagan and is very much in line with other idolatrous practices around the world, this should be looked at as something else. The king humbly acknowledges the divine freedom of God to relent or to proceed with the planned disaster. This rhetorical question seems to arise out of the understanding that there is interplay between divine mercy, where God is predisposed to forgive, and divine justice, which frees God from any obligation to forgive in response to repentance. However, we do not have to wait long to see God's response, and verse 10 tells it. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, it's important to know this. God was not impressed with their fasting. He was unmoved by their sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It was not the outward deeds he was interested in. It was the transformed heart. The evil that had prompted God to send Jonah in the first place was abandoned in repentance. In another fascinating Hebrew wordplay, we see the word ra'ah. It has multiple meanings. One meaning is evil. Such as when God in the beginning part of Jonah said their evil has come up before me, their wickedness, their ra'ah. It can also mean disaster or calamity, such as God relented concerning the ra'ah, which he declared he would bring upon them. One thing that's very important to notice, God did not change. God does not change. He's eternal immutable, unchanging. He's the same God now, yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God that created the universe, the same God who sustains all things, the same God who sent Christ to die for our sins on the cross. God does not change. What happened? The Ninevites changed. And that's why God stayed his hand. He did not bring about his threatened disaster. God is good He would not be so if he did not demand justice and punishment for evil. If a criminal killed a loved one, would it be just for the criminal to say, or for the judge to say, oh, you know, he had a hard life. He doesn't need to go to jail. There's no justice there. Justice comes with punishment. And God demands perfect justice because he is a perfect God. And this brings us to our third main point. The willing obedience of Jesus Christ. God is a just and righteous God. And he's unwilling to see sin left unpunished. All sin must be punished. Because God is infinite. Any sin against him is an infinite crime. A weak analogy would be the difference between punching a grocery store clerk and punching the king if you were in England. The punishment would be much different. One would be far more severe. What does the infinite punishment do to one who commits willful treason against an infinitely holy, good, and just king? An eternity in hell. When we look at the mention of hell in scripture, 
The 12 references to hell, most of them come from Jesus' own mouth. For example, in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. People trivialize the severity of hell, but the most terrifying truth of hell is that God's common goodness and grace are removed. The lost must eternally face the undiluted wrath of God. Jesus also described the eternal fire awaiting the wicked in Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the internal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is real. The fiery torment of hell is unending and is associated with three everlasting negative consequences, punishment, banishment, and destruction. Though we understand the first two, the biblical view of destruction relates to the concept of ruin and waste. Let me ask you this. Who knows the absolute horror of hell more than the one who created it? We read in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. All things came to being through Him, even hell. That's why Jesus came to earth. He came knowingly. He came willingly, perfectly obedient to the Father. Because Jesus is God, he also knows the only way to a right relationship with God. He's come to take on flesh, live a sinful life man cannot live, then suffer death and suffer the full wrath of God's fury against sin. Jesus, the sinless Savior, having all the sins of everyone who would come to believe in him, hung on him as he died on the cross and suffered God's wrath. Only an infinite God can withstand an infinite punishment. Jesus Christ suffered the wrath of God as though he lived our wretched sinful life. In return, we are given the love and affection as though we lived Christ's perfect life. God loved the Ninevites. He knew what was coming their way, and he offered them repentance. Just as the Ninevites, we, are, we were completely wicked and worthy only of God's wrath and eternal judgment. Just as God offered repentance and forgiveness to the Ninevites, he has sent his son, calling to us from the words of Scripture to put down our sin, turn to him, cry out for his forgiveness, and submit to his righteous rules, our Savior, God, and King. This begs an essential question, and that's our fourth main point for the evening. Are you reluctant or are you willing? God charged Jonah with the task of taking a message to Nineveh. Jonah obeyed reluctantly only after being disciplined. Jesus willingly took on the task of living in perfect obedience to the Father before dying on the cross to pay for the sins of all the elect, those chosen by the Father that he would one day bring to faith. It's important for those who profess to be Christians to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. If not, then it's even more important to confess your sin and cry out to Christ to have mercy on you. We're called to examine ourselves, and here are a couple questions that might help you self-diagnose the state of your heart. Every one of us struggles against the flesh, and will do so until Christ returns in glory or takes us home. So here are the questions that I would ask you to, to ask yourself. 
One, are you reluctant to spend time in the scripture because it reminds you of your disobedience and sin? Or are you eager to study God's word to know him better and to be constantly reminded of God's promises? Two, are you reluctant to obey God because you're unwilling to give up a favorite sin or afraid to face the consequences of doing so? Or do you increasingly seek to obey God because he's promised and has made promises that will lead to increased growth and holiness? Three, do you obey God willingly, trusting in his promises and his forgiveness of repentant sinners? Or do you doubt his word and live as though you are master of your own fate? Lastly, do you willingly confess your love of Jesus Christ and share the gospel with friends, family, co-workers, and even strangers? Or are you like Jonah, afraid of possible consequences? If we're to be somewhat honest with ourselves, we see that we're more like Jonah than Jesus. If we're truly honest with ourselves, we see that we're even more like the Ninevites. The good news is, God, in his infinite goodness, grace, mercy, has extended an offer of forgiveness to these wicked Gentiles. He extends the same offer to you. Let's pray. Lord, we see in your word that Jonah was a really bad prophet. He was disobedient, didn't do anything that you asked him to do willingly. And we'll see next week how he did so with great bitterness and resentfulness. Yet, despite the weakness of your messenger, your message came out clear and strong because you are powerful to save and your word will not come back empty but it will accomplish every intended effect. Lord, help us search your scripture joyfully, cheerfully. Let us turn from our sin. Let us look to greater obedience. Let us look to being more like Christ, who is the only example of true obedience. Would you forgive us, Lord, all the ways that we fall short? Help us take advantage of the fact that every day, is a new start, a fresh start. And let us trust that your, your promises will last till the end of time and beyond, that you will forgive those who come to you broken and repentant, and you will give us hope and life eternal in the presence of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.